This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest is Jennifer Granholm, who is a former governor of Michigan and a former attorney general. She is now at Berkeley as an adjunct professor in the School of Public Policy and in the law school. Jennifer, welcome to our program. So glad to be with you. Thank you. Where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, but came to the U.S. with my parents when I was four. And um, and we moved to Southern California and then to Northern California. And I'm proud to say I'm a Cal alum. And so that's where my parents actually are still alive and they are living in San Carlos. And looking back, how did they uh, uh, affect your thinking about the world? Well, it's kind of interesting you say that because they never got a chance to go to college. Um, they come from very humble uh, roots. And um, they're Republicans. I'm a Democrat, an active Democrat, so um, I often think that perhaps it was higher education that gave me a, a, a wiser view of the political spectrum. But they're, um, you know, they're also very meat and potatoes. And while I wasn't raised in Michigan, and I ended up becoming the governor of Michigan because I married Michigan, the sort of infused notion of being very, understanding where people come from when they haven't had all the opportunities uh, is a gift that my parents gave to me. And, and you, you have a very value-oriented uh, way of looking at the political world. Does that come from, from them? Well, I, it's an interesting thing. I mean, they're, when you say value-oriented, they're, um, you know, they are very faithful people in terms of religious faith. Um, and my dad, who was um, uh, just a stoic Swede, you know, I never heard him utter a swear word. I never heard him raise a voice. And I never heard him tell a lie in any way, shape, or form. I mean, for him, integrity was everything. And so I feel like that became, you know, so important to me because I would never want to do something, A, that disappointed him, but that ran counter to that sort of infused sense of values. Now, when I met my husband, who is Catholic, I converted to Catholicism. And the reason why is because the Catholic tradition that he came from and that I really admired was a tradition that involved service to the poor. And so that became a very much a part and parcel of how I governed and my values and priorities budgetarily in how I governed and the people that I was able to serve. And, and your relationship with your husband is a very important partnership in your life. Uh, not only did you write a book together, uh, A Governor's Story, which I will show our audience and which we will talk about in a few minutes, but, but also he was a, 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 an important partner when you went into public service. Super important partner. I mean, first of all, when we... Um, 
We should say his name. His name is Daniel Mulhern, Mm -hmm. and he's also a professor here Mm -hmm. at Berkeley. He teaches in the Haas Business School. He teaches leadership, as a matter of fact, which is what um, he ended up doing before I became governor. He had a business, et cetera, that was doing consulting and leadership and all of that. But he um, he's from Michigan. And we met at law school, and I um, initially, you know, I had to be wooed, I'll just say that, and he was really great at that. But we're totally different people. He's very much, he's very uh, heart-centered, I'm, I'm head-centered, you know, we, we uh, if you looked at, I don't know if your viewers know what Myers-Briggs is, but it's a test that, you know, determines your personality types, etc. We are completely opposite, and which is really great, because together we make a whole and he has skills and um, tendencies that I don't have. And similarly, I have skills and tendencies that he doesn't have. And so it's a really great thing. It could create tension. But once, we, once you come to love and understand somebody, we've been married for 33 years, you know, you, you end up recognizing that the things that you might uh, differ uh, the, you know, differ about are things that actually can end up bet- benefiting you. So he has been an incredible partner in our life and in our marriage and in raising kids. When he grew up, he wanted to be either Pope or President <laughs> or Governor of Michigan. And um, when we went through marriage prep with the priest, uh, the priest said to us, well, hey, what if the party comes to Jennifer and asks her to run for office, what will you do? And he was like, you know, he grew up, he was, he went to Yale as an undergrad, he went to Harvard Law School, he's, you know, he's, he was a jock, he wanted to be, you know, a big man. And um, he said, well, I'd probably be jealous, but if she wanted to do it, I'd be behind her 100%. Mm-hmm. And the priest was very prescient, and the party did come to me, and Dan, from the get-go, was saying, hey, the door only opens every so often. When it does, you got to go through. I'm with you. I'm behind you. I've got the kids. Because when I ran for attorney general, which was my first public office, my youngest child, we have three children, my youngest was only seven months old. And so Dan was like, I got the kids. Don't worry. Let's do it. I don't think he really knew what he was getting into mm-hmm. when he said that. But nonetheless, he has been an incredible so, so, partner. And, and he really assumed the burden of raising yeah, yeah. the children. Yeah. I mean, his lane was to take care of these these little souls. And honestly, if, you know, if you did look at our personality uh, types and you compared them and you were trying to pick someone to raise your children you would pick him mm-hmm. because he can, you know, he can stare at a baby so for the Lord, hours. The Lord intervened. The Lord intervened, <laughs> I guess. I mean, I, you know, it's funny because they ended up benefiting enormously because he's, you know, he's a creative, he's soul-centered. So for them, it was really important. And it's hard to be a child of a governor or an attorney general. And so having somebody there who is solid, who is there for you is really, really important. And I'm just so grateful that he was willing to do that. Before you went to Cal and to Harvard Law, you tried a number of different careers. We don't have to go into it. Thank but, you. But is there, <laughs> is, there a, is there a general lesson that you acquired from trying a number of things before you... Yeah, yeah. which is go and do it. You know, I yeah. mean, a lot of times I think um, kids at, you know, at Cal, because they've got these young people who you know, who want to achieve, 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 which is great. But sometimes, you know, you want to experiment a little bit. And, and closing doors is a way of making a choice. And so to be able to try some stuff out, even if it's wild stuff, you know, and if it doesn't work, 
what better time to try it, at least, when you are young and don't have a family and don't have those kind of responsibilities. So I strongly encourage these young people to experiment and then figure that out, try it, and maybe it'll work, who knows? But if it doesn't, don't feel bad about it. Just know that it's an exper- it's a you know, it's a stepping stone in life. What what led you to politics and the law? Pardon me, what led me? Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's funny. One of the things that I tried is I went to Los Angeles and I wanted to become a, you know, a serious actress. And I was in that role, not in that role, but in that, in that step, I worked for um, uh, Universal Studios as a tour guide. And in between tours, I kid you not, I would sit in the back uh, waiting for my tour to be called. And I was reading... Will and Ariel Durant's The History of Civilization. And that got me to reading philosophy. And that got me to thinking, what the hell am I doing here? (laughs) And um, really got me super interested in politics. My parents were not political. I mean, they're Republicans, but they're sort of, you know, one step removed. They're not active. Um, I, I volunteered for a political campaign, which at that time was John B. Anderson, who was an independent. Um, I went door to door for him. I, I became a U.S. citizen. Uh, I had started that process when I was 16. I was the first in my family to become a U.S. citizen um, from Canada. And then um, that swearing in ceremony was so powerful for me. The swearing in? To become a citizen. Oh, oh right. I felt like I, I own, this is my country now, and I have an obligation to do something. And so the combination of reading sort of the history, uh, both history and philosophy, and then um, becoming a citizen, I said, I am leaving L.A., and I am going to go to the best college I possibly can and, you know, and take a different path. And so that's when I was fortunate to be able to get into Berkeley, and, um, and, and all was history from there. And then to Harvard Law School. I like to ask my guests what they see as the the skills and temperament uh, prerequisites for the work that they have done. So in your case as a a political leader, uh, what advice do you have for students about the skills that they should acquire and the the temperament they have to find? Um, Well, I think the most important piece of advice I give to students is, you know, if you want to run for office, if you want to be a a leader, which is great, glad that you want to serve. But most important, if you don't have as a personal experience some kind of crisis or tragedy or difficulty that you have surmounted, then put yourself in a position to see other people's pain. Put yourself in a place to understand what the thing is you should be fixing out there. Remember, if somebody, if a young person comes to me and says, I want to run for office, and I say, why? And they say, because I think I'd be really good at it. I'm good at speaking. I, you know, I know a lot of people. People tell me I'd be good. I'm like, dude, that is the worst reason to run. You, it's not about you. It's about an authentic desire to change the world in some way, in some meaningful way. And if you don't have that as your driver, then you will never be successful or good or have people follow you. Nobody wants to follow you because you speak well. People want to follow you because you are determined authentically to change something. And so to me, that's the most important qualification to have. I hear you saying that 
two elements uh, are empathy, which you just described, but also uh, empathy and responsibility. Well, totally. So once you mm-hmm. do it, you know, well, what's involved here and let's get to doing it. Yeah, in fact, I was just speaking at, um, I was speaking to a class, uh, my husband's class on leadership at the Haas Business School, and Haas has a value on the wall. One of their values is beyond self. And, um, you know, if you're going to serve the public in some way, you have to recognize that it must be because you are put here on a planet to do something more than serve yourself. You have to be about others. It's not about money. It's not about anything other than you're putting every ounce, every fiber of your being into making it better for others. When, when you become governor, you, are, uh, you come in with an agenda. You have a set of plans. But that's not the, the it's first not always the thing that, <laughs> that works out. <laughs> right. And so what you open the door to the governor's office and there is crisis yeah. after crisis. And cri- so so what did it take to uh, to uh, uh, to be able to embrace that situation? And you you say in your book, uh, if I can find it here, uh, 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 a quote that you had gotten from a friend about uh, endure, move forward. Uh, I can't find um, it right now. Do yeah, ex- want... accept, adjust, advance. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's sort of the key to what well, you do. Well, I mean, in my case, so I was elected as governor during a time of massive economic shift. I mean, it was really an existential crisis for Michigan, for Michigan's economy, for Michigan citizens, for Michigan's businesses. We were known as the automotive capital. We were known as a manufacturing state. We had seven times more manufacturing, old line manufacturing jobs as any other state in the country. And that's, and people came, you know, the, the whole migration north was to Henry Ford's factories, right? And so everybody came to Michigan. Everybody's families from Michigan. Dan, my husband's father, is, you know, 37 years at Ford. I mean, everybody worked in the auto industry or in one of the, to one of the suppliers. I mean, it was just part and parcel of who we are. And so when the crisis in manufacturing happened, you know, obviously there had been automation that had been displacing jobs, like, you know, in the latter part of the last century. But it accelerated so much. And when combined with trade and automation together, it just completely decimated so much of who we were. So that crisis was not just a one-off crisis. That was a deep, you know, structural change in our economy. And we're talking about what year? So about- I was elected as governor in, in 2002. 2002. So we, there, was a, there was a national recession happening at that point. George Bush was president. 2003, I came into office and it only, you know, continued to get worse. You know, in Michigan, the the motto is when the nation catches a cold, Michigan catches pneumonia. That's because we manufacture big consumer products like cars. When we're in a recession, people don't buy those kind of products. However, there's pent-up demand. And when you come out of a national recession, then we used to do really well. So that cycle was something we were used to in Michigan. But in the early 2000s, it became that clear that this was not a cyclical recession, but this was a structural change in the real under 
underpinnings of our economy. And that required a different kind of leadership, which gets back to your point. The door opens, crisis hits us in a way that we had not anticipated, no one had anticipated, and boom, we had to deal with it. And, and you had to assume all sorts of roles. You had to be a strategist, a negotiator, uh, 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 a explainer to the, the public who had elected you expecting one agenda and getting another? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true with any governor, with any CEO, that you have to assume all of those roles. But it is on steroids when you, when you are in crisis, right? Especially the part about helping people transition from an old economy to a new one. When their, their identity is tied up in manufacturing these products or, you know, in their father had worked at this factory and their grandfather had worked at this factory. That whole identity crisis, when you tell them, you know what, those jobs are not going to come back and you have to be retrained. That means you're putting the work on them when they want you to fix it for them. And so that is a, uh, that is a leadership moment where you're trying to bring, to give the work back to the people and the people don't want to have to do that kind of work. So it's easier to explain it to them often when you talk about it in terms of their children. So you can say to somebody who is a factory worker who's in their you know, late 40s, look, what was good enough for you, and you made rational choices at the time you made those choices to go from high school to factory, but that's not going to be good enough for your kids. They all get it then. They see what's happening. It's just the idea of a 40-something-year-old going back to get retrained and having to sit next in a community college to a, you know, an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old doing trigonometry when you didn't have to take that even in high school, that's a, it's a diminishing thing. It's a dignity question. And so there has to be a response to that that is more robust and more nuanced and more dignified than we have used in the past in the U.S. And, and this, this empathy thing becomes very important because you have factory after factory closing and you have to confront the workers and go to the factory that's about to close and and explain to them that you care and this is what we have to do. Yeah, I mean, can I, I'll just tell this story yeah. about Greenville because this, um, there's a little city in Michigan, Greenville, um, and it happened in my first year in office and it really became the, the wake-up call for me uh, that things were going to be totally different than what I had anticipated. So the, we had in Michigan something called the Michigan Economic Development Corporation, which is the entity that saves businesses, that works with them to come. And I got a call from the president of that entity at the end of my first year in office, and he said, Gough, we got a big problem. There is this little tiny community in the middle of Michigan called Greenville, and they are known as the refrigerator capital of North America because they have the largest refrigerator factory in North America operated by Electrolux. This town had 8,000 people. 3,000 worked at the factory. So as you can imagine, with senior citizens and children, etc., it's a one-company town, essentially. There are suppliers, and there's the factory. And, they, and the guy from the Economic Development Corporation said to me, the problem is, is that that factory is going to move to Juarez, Mexico. And I said, are you kidding me? I'm the new governor. There's no way. So we went, I brought my whole cabinet to Greenville, and we put all sorts of incentives together to offer to the head of Electrolux, the management of Electrolux. And it was, you know, $780 million worth of incentives, which was massive, you know, zero taxes for 20 years. We're going to help to build them a new factory, all of that. 
And um, they looked at our list of incentives. They went outside the room for 17 minutes. They came back in and said, wow, this is the most generous that any community has ever been in trying to create jobs, keep their jobs. But there's nothing you can do, Governor, because we can pay $1.57 an hour in Juarez, Mexico. Now, when he told us this, this was like a nuclear bomb. This is the CEO. Or, yeah. yeah, this was the head of the, of the uh, management team at Electrolux who had came, come in for mm-hmm. this negotiation. And, um, and, and uh, because Michigan had so many of these kind of factories, when he said there's nothing you can do, I thought, oh, my God, what does this mean for the rest of these communities, these little towns that are built up around these factories? And the month that the last refrigerator came off the assembly line, let me just say this. The, the, the workers at Electrolux were so incredible that when this was announced that they were leaving and it was, you know, the newscasters, they were tears everywhere. They sh- but the next day, these workers showed up with American flags on their lapels, showed up for work on time, and they worked through till the last refrigerator was off the assembly line. And that month, they had this this big gathering in a pavilion in Greenville called Clackle's Orchard Pavilion. And they called this gathering the Last Supper. Mm-hmm. And I went to it, and I went up to the first table. And, you know, it was just like this massive community wake. You know, it was, everybody was grieving, and everybody's like nudging, what are you going to do? What are you going to do now? What are you going to do now? And I go up to the first table, and there's this guy in his, he's got a baseball cap on, and he's got tattoos, and he stands up, and he says, Gup! He's got his daughters next to him. He says, I want you to meet my girls. He said, I have worked in this factory for 30 years. My father worked in this factory. My grandfather worked in this factory. I went from high school to factory. I'm, four, to, I'm 48 years old. All I know is how to make refrigerators. And then he does this. He puts his hand on his chest like this, and he says, So, Gov, tell me, who is ever going to hire me? Mm-hmm. So, so in, you're, you're governing in a context where the Republicans have set the stage, and they've <laughs> been uh, running and winning on a platform of cut taxes, less government, uh, and... Uh, if not eliminate, then lower the expenses of the social net. Uh, the, the social social net. net. Mm-hmm. That increases your problem, and I, I guess as I'm listening to you, you on the one hand have empathy, but in the back of your head you must have a theory of what's causing all of this. Well, yeah, I mean, it, I will say this. I mean, I know that it has to do with globalization, right? Obviously, they're going to Mexico you know, uh, because they can and it's cheaper. Um, I used to campaign on, you know, NAFTA and CAFTA have given us the shafta. So I know why Donald Trump won in states like Michigan, because there are the residue, these hulking residues or vacant land from people, for, from factories that have been cleared out, right? So I know that. So a lot of this had to do less with the state budget than with external factors that were, that were global. However, because these factories were leaving and people were finding themselves without work, 
that had a huge impact on the state budget. State budgets are countercyclical, and obviously when unemployment is high, the needs are high, but the income to the state, the tax receipts are lower. So what do you do in that situation? And when I was elected, you know, I, as I say, I was, I'm a Democrat, and I was elected with a Republican House and a Republican Senate, a Republican Supreme Court, a Republican Attorney General, and a Republican Secretary of State. So I was the only Democrat. It required compromise. I get the idea of cutting taxes to try to make yourself irresistible, but our corporate tax rate was not that high. It wasn't corporate taxes that caused Electrolux or any of the other factories to go. It was because of wages, honestly. And, 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 and automation, obviously, eventually played a big role, too. Not in the early part of the, of the 21st century, but certainly in the, in the you know, past decade or so, it's really played a much bigger role. Um, I say all of that to say that the state responses to something like this um, are really, it's, a, it's very difficult, because what you want to do is invest great, more, uh, more robustly in training for those workers, but you don't have the money to be able to do that. When you, all you're trying to do, you've got your finger in the dike to at least not cut um, K through 12 education or not cut health care for vulnerable citizens. It is a very difficult time. So as governor, even though I'm a Democrat, I ended up cutting more out of state government than any governor in the history of Michigan, but as a proportion than any governor in the country during that recession. We ended up, you know, by 25% cutting all these state departments, closing down prisons, defunding the arts, defunding all of these things. In fact, I went around to the state in every media market of the state, and I did these town halls where I had, I had the uh, local station select people who were representative of areas where state government was, was facing cuts, students, teachers, prison workers, you know, all, you know, sheriffs, et cetera. And I gave them all clickers and I said to them, okay, if, I'm gonna, if you have to make your first cut or place your first dollar, where would it be? And I'd give them a series of choices. Would you defund the arts? Would you defund libraries? Would you defund libraries? Would you defund um, higher education? Would you defund higher education or would you defund prisons? Would you do pr uh, higher education versus K through 12? You know, you have to have people realize what the series of trade-offs are. And so I took all of the results of those essential focus groups back to the legislature because I had also invited the state reps that represented those areas. And I gave them what the citizens wanted. And the citizens basically said, if you have to cut, cut, but don't cut K through 12 and don't cut health care for vulnerable citizens, those two things. And I'm pleased that despite all the massive cuts, those two things I was able to preserve. But the only way to do it in the face of all of the crisis was to be able to go to the people. But you came in knowing that retraining and education were an important plank yes. in your platform. Yes. Yes, absolutely. That was, those were things that uh, I came in knowing, yeah. but n we hadn't faced the crisis yet. And fortunately, um, you know, so I was governor also when the auto industry went bankrupt, right? So our major, and before that, the suppliers to the auto industry went bankrupt. And during the Great Recession um, in 2008, 
um, from between Jan between December of 2008 and Janu and uh, June of 2009, I got 1,018 Warn Act notices. And Warn Act notices, for your viewers, are the, are the notices that a governor gets and a mayor gets when a company's about to do a mass layoff. So 1,018 companies doing mass layoffs during that six-month period. So we were completely in the soup. So fortunately, um, Obama was elected, and I was able to go to the Department of Labor and said, can you give us a waiver on all of the monies that we would normally get, because we have to craft an emergency training program for our workers. And we also have to work with the Department of Commerce to get international investment in Michigan, because you have to have jobs to train people for, right? So we, it was a simultaneous diversify the economy, bring in new kinds of jobs, train people for those jobs, while not cutting these essential services that kept keep people afloat. You were governing now, which was very different from campaigning. Yeah. So, so talk a little about that uh, uh, dichotomy. And importantly, when you're running for re-election, you're running against Mr. DeVos, yeah. who is, I guess, the husband, the husband of Betsy DeVos. Of yeah. Betsy DeVos. Yeah. And the, the founder or the president of uh, Amway. Amway. Mm -hmm. So, so basically. You wear a very different hat when you have you have to. Oh, for sure. I mean, you you know, you campaign in poetry, you govern in prose. Yeah. The old uh, sta saying goes, and honestly, you really don't know what it's like. You know, when you're campaigning, you're, you know, you're motivating people. You're enthusiastic. You have these visions of what you'll be able to achieve, and sometimes the reality, you know, the rubber meets the road when you walk in the door. So. Two years after I was elected governor and all of this stuff had started to happen, all these crises started to kick in, I wasn't even into my third year, you know, governor terms are four years, but um, Dick DeVos declared that he was going to run against me because all of this stuff was happening, right? Now, anybody with uh, a brain understands that a governor doesn't control the national economy, you know, if the auto industry and the suppliers are going into bankruptcy, that's not a governor's response. You know, the governor doesn't do much about it unless, you know, the governor actively did something to promote that, but that wasn't obviously the case. But nonetheless, you're up against somebody, I was up against somebody who had millions and millions, I mean, they're billionaires, millions and millions of dollars to spend to persuade the citizens that somehow Michigan's sick, uh, structural changes were the new governor's fault. And so that was a, that was a really um, challenging moment. But the good news is, from my perspective, is that um, I won the re-election mm. and I, I won with the largest number of votes ever cast in Michigan's history, and partly because uh, Mr. DeVos himself had, um, had a factory in Michigan that he shut down and opened up one in China. And People saw that as outsourcing, uh, Amway stands for American Way, American Way jobs to, uh, to China, and that was not uh, readily forgiven. Social media wasn't a factor yet, I assume. In not these, quite so much, no. Yeah, and, and how does that change all this? Oh, Doesn't so, it yes. lower the standards even more than they're already pretty low? When you low? say standards, what do you mean standards? I mean the standards of civility mm. in campaigning. Yeah, I think that uh, certainly what we're seeing, it's a much more crass world because perhaps uh, you know anybody can play, right? I think that there's some real beauty in the democratization of um, political discourse because everybody can have a voice. 
you just want to make sure that people, you know, that some, um, I don't know, some sense of standards are, some civility is, is upheld. And I worry, you know, I mean, personally, I worry that the example that's being set, um, you know, in the White House just degrades our desire for the truth, for example. I mean, this relative truth, alternative facts, it's just so disturbing to me. I wonder, after we're done with this period, this term, will we get back as a nation to realizing that some facts really are facts. You know what? This really is a glass. It is not, uh, you know, <laughs> it's not a sponge, you know, and, and it's not relative, you know. And so I hope that we will get back to a, uh, the notion of honor and of truth and of all of that. But maybe that's just a quaint thing on my part. L- looking back and in, in dealing with these crises and dealing with this campaign where People are coming at you with the with the the, stra- the strangest charges. What are you most proud of, both as a governor and as a campaigner? Well, two different. That's two different questions. Yeah. As a campaigner, I was really proud of the campaign that we ran because it really was about values. When I campaigned, it was uh, we. I sat down before and I tried to figure out all right. What what do really what do I stand for? What are what are the values that I stand for? in order to be able to explain what citizens will get through governance. So it was integrity, it was creativity, it was excellence, and it was inclusion. Those were the four values I ran on. When I did fundraisers, I would go through the four values and I would say, here's what I'm going to do that will... Um, be an example of those. And what do you get? What's your return on investment for investing in this campaign is that you will make sure that you have someone who is relying on values. That's a good return on your investment. So that's campaigning. It's a different scenario. I mean, you want to you bring those values into government, 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 but it's a different scenario. You can't just govern up in the air. You, you know, the reality on the ground is much different. What I'm really proud of is that we, we, did th- we were focused on three things, diversifying the economy, educating our citizens, and protecting people as we transitioned from this old economy to a new one. So I'm really proud of the fact that we were able to start, you can't finish everything in two short terms, but start the ball rolling to bring in new sectors in Michigan. Other, you know, We wanted to support the manufacturing sector, but also recognize that you cannot balance a state's economy on one leg. You have to bring in other legs. And so we did that. The, the effort to try to get more young people to go to college. Our goal was eventually to double the number of college graduates in Michigan. That would not be able to happen in my terms as governor, but we wanted to get people knowing that college was super important or getting a certification or getting something that will enable you and seeing education as a lifelong thing and not just something that you do before you're 22. So those kinds of things, I'm really, you know, really proud that we set the ball rolling. And by the time my last term came around and the last couple years after the Great Recession, we actually had the fastest growth of any state in the country, according to Gallup, in terms of our economy, because we really took advantage of the crisis to bring in a lot of investment, a lot of international investment. I did 11 trips overseas to bring in international investment. And we investment. should mention that because 
part of your campaign hat was useful as you went abroad to attract foreign totally. investment and foreign business. Right, selling Michigan uh, overseas. I mean, Michigan is an amazing state. It's a beautiful state. It has more miles of shoreline than any state in the country, even more than California. People might not realize that. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful state. So being able to sell the state to people and saying, hey, let Michigan be your gateway. If you want to open your doors in the U.S., let Michigan be your gateway to that. We're in the middle of the country. We make things. We have more engineers per capita than any state in the country. You know, that kind of thing. So it allowed me to be able to do that. I mean, one of the areas that we wanted to move into was in the clean energy economy. And one of the components of that was making auto 2.0, which is the electric vehicle. So we were a little ahead of our time. But I went to Korea, I went to Japan to get the components for the battery, for the lithium-ion battery. So we needed anode, cathode, separator material, electrolyte. We had to have those suppliers inside of the state. And we created a whole supply chain to be able to do that. So those kind of things I'm really proud of. And they've lasted. So that's really important. (laughs) When uh, In your uh, Weinstock lecture, you talked about AI and employment and, and, and workers and so on. And I'm, I'm curious because this tenure as governor, and now you're at Berkeley, has really prepared you to think about how we integrate technology, not run away from it. Right. And I want, I want you to break that down a little. At wearing your political hat, what are the sorts of things that you have to think about if we're gonna bring AI to the table? Retraining, education, what? Right, right. So, um, you know, there has been, there's been this in the industrial Midwest, there has been really, the villain has been China. It's not necessarily been robotics, although people are starting to see this now. It's easier to campaign against China. I mean, you saw the president do that during his campaign, than it is against robots. People see the benefit of robots. They don't want to have to lift heavy stuff. They don't want, they want to learn how to program the robots. They want to know how to maintain a robotic line. And so the idea that you can have a better job, a more well-paying job, without breaking your back is a really interest and you can still work in a factory now there may be fewer of those jobs those specific jobs inside of a factory however those jobs will be better paying that's attractive to people because they can see themselves in that so the only Mm. question to me at that point not just to me but to everybody is how do you train people who haven't had a college degree and for you know it made sense for them not to at the time how do you train them to be able to work with the technology and the technology enhances their capabilities rather than having them see it as a threat. That to me, we can actually use AI to help retrain people in a way that allows them to have that dignity. There are a number of examples of this that are currently in use. For example, the Department of Defense has just um, has deployed this AI technology where they're training these naval officers using something called Digital Tutor, where you the, the tutor assesses where you are and assesses how you learn and then takes them to the next level and allows them to do it at their own speed in their own way, in a way while they're learning, while the machine is learning how they learn best. The results of those have been astonishing and astonishingly successful. 
So for people in the industrial Midwest who have been displaced like this, this to me requires create a creative federal response, or it could be a state-by-state response. I would love to see a competition be issued for the for apps that develop or for training modules that are developed using AI to get someone to be able to work with AI. To me, that is a great response. I also think that our workforce development, our workforce training dollars, which are so terribly ineffectively spent right now, we have something called the Workforce Investment Act, the Trade Adjustment Assistance Act. They're terrible. The results are terrible. Studies have shown that they don't, they're not effective. We spent, we spent billions on that. If we could redirect that money to help subsidize wages during a training period so that somebody is training for a job that they know is going to be happening on the job training rather than in the classroom training for those kind of workers is by far the most effective. Right now we pay unemployment to people to go and look for a job. What if we paid unemployment to people partly subsidizing those wages as well? Flip it, help to subsidize their employment during that training process give the employer a chance to look at them, give them a chance to look at the employer, have them gain a skill. And at the end of the unemployment period, the employer can decide up or down, the employee can decide up or down, but they'll have gained a skill and have wages. So there's a total, I just think we got to turn the way we've been doing things on its head. And and you need a, 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 a vigorous social network, in a social net in, in this context, right, for this transition, whether it's tuition support, whether, whatever. Yeah, I think that um, tuition support can happen by repurposing this workforce, the, the training dollars we currently spend that are ineffective. The safety net can happen by repurposing unemployment and, how, and what we are paying for when we pay people's unemployment, right? I mean, you have to have some unemployment that is there not paying for training, but a large portion of it could be used to upskill people. There are experiments that have been um, undertaken in other countries. For example, in Singapore, they have decided that they're going to put $500 in, a, in an account, in a lifelong learning account, for every citizen of Singapore over 25 years old. And they're going to do this on an annual basis. They just started it, so they haven't evaluated it. But the purpose is, and Singapore as a state, you know, as a, as a geopolitical entity has been uh, viewed as the most effectively run entity in the country, in the, in the, you know, in the whole city-state, in the whole world, they decided that it's important for their citizens to continually learn and to have the freedom to have a portable account that will enable them to upskill themselves. We should be thinking of stuff like that in this country as well. Education should not be seen as K through 12 or K through, you know, Either, whether it's undergraduate or graduate, it's got to be a lifelong uh, thing. And it can't just be in the setting of a university or a community college. It has to be, you know, there has to be broader ways of looking at it. Uh, I would like now to talk a little about the two-party structure and get your assessment <coughs> of the Republican and Democratic uh, ability to deal with these kinds of problems. And to the extent that the Republicans fail, why have they dominated the discourse on what government should be doing? Um, I think the president has been extremely effective at communicating 
to people who have felt left behind. When he talks about the forgotten American, even though, <clears throat> you know, he's never experienced any of that himself. You know, during the campaign, he went to a um, he went to a farm in an off the track. I can't remember. It was a southern state. I can't remember where exactly it was. But I he went to this farm and. All of the pundit class, the chattering class, were saying, why would he go way over there? You know, that's crazy. People came for hundreds of miles in this rural place to see him because he specifically chose to go to a place that was off the beaten path. And it was a huge signal that I'm going to see you. To me, this is where Democrats, because traditionally Democrats have been about the forgotten American, the little guy, the person who doesn't have money, the person who's not got clout. The fact that we've allowed Donald Trump to be the champion for that when he so does not personally embody it is amazing. Now, so he has had a specific uh, skill. The Republican Party, I think, is, is, doesn't have that same skill. I think he's sui generis. And so the question is, who's going to be able to take that mantle? Mike Pence would never be able to do yeah. that, right? That's just not. So, so to me, this, uh, as you set up a 2020 um, battle, the Democrats need to, have, to put someone up who is authentically speaking to people, all people. It's got to be about the great word all. It can't, you know, and you've got to have somebody who, you know, young people who are here. I was, in, uh, was having dinner last night with a student at Berkeley, and she was saying, you know, she was so passionate about, we are craving authenticity. Don't BS us. Don't <laughs> give us this political speak. This is why social media is so, is so empowering for so many because it allows people to speak their mind without having to censor all of the, you know, the, you know, the, to put your words in the most political box. The political, um, uh, uh, the people who are doing, um, the strategy for politics over the past 30 years are freaking out because nothing that is true in the past is going to be true in 2020. That usual strategy just does not work. So people are encouraged to be, you can make a mistake now. You can admit it. You can fess up. You can say, hey, in the past I smoked pot or whatever it was. You can admit to having gone through something. You can admit, I mean, Stacey Abrams in Georgia admitted to having had some difficulty with her finances. There are just, there's so much you can admit to and just be honest about. And that next generation, the millennials, the Gen Zers, are craving people who are just going to be honest and not run away from being human. And so I think whoever it is that is president has to be courageous enough on the Democratic side, at least. In running against Donald Trump, you have to be courageous enough to be authentic and to speak to all people, including those that are off the beaten track, including those that the political advisors would suggest, oh, you should ignore them because they're not going to vote for you anyway, or they never vote. So don't waste your time. Mm -mm, that's not going to work anymore. If you compare the policies of the Democrats uh, in terms of, with the Republicans, in terms of having a rational, worked out policy uh, of what should be done about the integration of AI, hypothetically, mm -hmm. let's say, then, then how do you make that understandable to people? In other words, how does that interface with authenticity 
and the personality of the bearer of that plan. Because clearly in the last election, there was no impact uh, in, in terms of what was a laid out program by the Clintons. Yeah, no, and, and, you know, I was on Hillary Clinton's transition team and on her policy group, and she had a book this thick of very specific policies, including how to retrain for AI and how it's integrated in a way that creates jobs rather than, um, you know, takes them away and all of that. And I think Democrats have got to, uh, you know, we always end up electing or at least nominating somebody who's super smart and who's got the best policy books. And so Hillary Clinton or John Kerry or Michael Dukakis or Al Gore are all super brilliant people, right? But if you can't translate what's in those books to people's hearts and speak to their guts, then your policy book means nothing. So you have to be able to tell stories that resonate with people using real people. And so if you don't, I mean, this is true as, as governor, as, you know, I mean, this is why everybody always brings somebody to the state of the union, to the state of the state, because you, the way you can say, this is why my policy is going to work, because it worked for this real person who's like you, and, and to give people hope that something like that will work. So to me, you have to have somebody that speaks to people's heads and hearts, and that's you know, that's a challenge. That's the magical challenge, especially when you're talking about AI. People, um, you know, if I went to Michigan now and even use the words AI, people wouldn't know what I'm talking about. If I say robots, people know what I'm talking about. So we have to be able to have language that is accessible and take down the fear level and say, you know what, this is going to create more jobs than it's going to take away. Yeah, the taxi drivers and the truck drivers may eventually have their jobs impacted, but can you imagine this whole spate of businesses that could be growing up around this? I mean, giving people some imagination, uh, you know, giving them seeds of hope, I think is really important. And, And what will make for that possible candidate background, personality, obviously smarts. The Democrats don't have a problem with smarts. Yeah, I think definitely smarts, but more so. uh, It's not it's not personality. It's really this this quality of authenticity causing people's hearts to soar in some way. The ability to speak to aspiration. I mean, Obama did this so well. Bill Clinton did this so well. So whoever it is, it cannot be somebody who's robotic. It's got to be somebody who gets it and who gets the deep, you know, the deep personal crisis that people feel when they see that vacant factory on their corner or, or you know, I mean, pick any other crisis out there, right? The healthcare situation, a mom who, whose child has sickle cell anemia and she can't afford the copay. Somebody who has seen and has been there, somebody who's gone through those experiences, to me, will be the best candidate. One last question requiring a brief answer. Looking back at your career, do you have a single piece of advice for students or people or young people planning to go into politics? Well, one, if they're planning to go into politics, great. My best advice really is for them to serve before you go in, in a role that enables you to see people who have gone through crisis or who are in crisis so that you can take their stories with you. 
Well, on that note, uh, uh, Jennifer, thank you very much. For yes, taking what a the delight. Time to be here. You're such a great questioner. It's great to be here. Thank, thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> and thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.